0: What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own, and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Donna Hayes is a mother, actress, singer, businesswoman, and author. In the following two episodes, she shares her experiences of domestic violence, divorce, and the various events that she believes led her to be a victim of love and financial fraud. The Broken Psycho Media team is grateful that Donna was willing to share all that came next for her amidst her legal battle as well as her journey sharing via cabaret show, book, podcast, television, and more.
1: Hi, my name is Donna Marie Hayes. I currently reside in the vibrant city of New York. I've had a corporate career spanning 38 years. I worked in the financial services industry culminating in a role as the managing director and deputy head of human resources for an international investment bank. Beyond my corporate endeavors, I also have a range of other passions and talents. I am an actress. I'm a cabaret singer here in New York City. I've been on Law & Order SVU. I was on Orange is the New Black. I'm a series regular in an upcoming TV show. I'm not sure where it's gonna land on which of the streaming platforms. I think I would be described as someone who is ever-giving, patient, and caring, sometimes to my detriment. My personality has been described as effervescent. I am comfortable pretty much around anyone and everyone. I root for the underdog, and I want to believe in the inherent good of all. I just have this passion to help others. Finally, I think spirituality is certainly an essential cornerstone in my life accentuating my core values and influencing hopefully positive interactions. I grew up in Jamaica, West Indies. I lived in the countryside with my maternal grandmother and step-grandfather. We were very poor. We used the outhouse. There was no indoor plumbing and at night kerosene was used for light. Indoor plumbing and electricity were not luxuries that we could afford, but I couldn't miss what I didn't have. My grandmother and my step-grandfather were fine people. I am a very affectionate, lovey-dovey, demonstrative type of child. They didn't abuse me or hurt me in any way, but they weren't lovey-dovey. I craved for that. My step-grandfather worked in a factory of some sort, and my grandmother would go to the market to sell her wares. So for the most part, it was just this huge lot. We had this huge property where our house was. I had a lot of time on my hands. So I would explore the vast yard. I would find solace in the company of animals. That's when I discovered my love for singing and acting. The animals were my captive audience. I would entertain them. I would serenade them with songs, would bring characters to life through my performances, even at that young age, my parents were here in the US. Ever since I was a child, I yearned to know my parents. I wanted to know who they were. I saw other children interacting with their mothers and their fathers. And I've always wondered, why is it that I don't have my mother and my father? I even prayed to their pictures. I believed this fantasy that I created in my mind that if I prayed to their pictures, they could hear me. During those prayers, if you will, I would tell them that I did my chores, that I was a good girl in school, anything to impress upon them that I was worthy of them coming for me. I did feel abandoned. My sisters were in the States with my mother. My oldest sister was in another part of Jamaica for a period of time, but ultimately, She moved to the States to live with my mother and my younger sister. And I always wondered, why couldn't I? The message that that sent to my young mind is that I was not good enough. Something about that stayed with me my entire life. I don't want to vilify my mother, but I do know whenever she would visit, I just wanted to sit on her lap and I wanted her to hug me. I wanted her to tell me that I mattered. I wanted her to tell me that I was just as good as my other two sisters, but that didn't really happen. That emotional piece that I yearned for was missing. I remember this heaviness, even as a young child, feeling unworthy. If you have three children, two of whom are living with you and one is not, the message that that sends to a young impressionable child is that something about you Is not good enough. My childhood was pretty much marked by this intense sense of loneliness. My sisters came to live with us at one point. And for those two years, I felt included. I had my sisters. We would go to school together. We would do our homeworks together and we would play together. I didn't have to talk to the cows and the pigs and the goats anymore. I had my actual siblings, and I also had my cousin, Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I actually had a cousin by the name of Sherlock Holmes. It was Sherlock, myself, and my two sisters, my grandmother, and my step grandfather. I remember feeling complete. Then one day, my mother visited. We got up that morning. My mother told us all to get dressed. I assumed we were all going someplace. Then we sat at the dining room table, and my Grandmother made this huge breakfast. I remember being so excited because we were probably going to the beach. We were probably going to visit someone. Now, keep in mind, from a cultural standpoint, we weren't allowed to ask questions like, Where are we going? That would be considered rude. So we had our breakfast and then we all sat on the veranda patiently waiting for wherever it is we were going to go. And then my mother emerged from the living room. She called my sister's name and says, come on, let's go. And she took my baby sister by the hand. They just left. She didn't say goodbye. She didn't say, I'll come back to get you. Not a word. In that moment, it all cemented for me, clearly, you're not good enough. When I was living in Jamaica, I won a scholarship and I went to a very, very prestigious boarding school. This was almost like a finishing school. There's a bell for everything. There's a bell to go to sleep. There's a bell to take a shower. There's a bell to eat. There's a bell to go to sleep. The assistant principal called us hooligans. This woman says, you like polishing. At that school, I just remember that same feeling. Everyone's mom and dad would come to visit them. And I didn't really have anyone to visit me. I was sharing a dorm with the sister of Miss Jamaica. She was the number one sprinter, and then there was just me. I just remember feeling so inadequate. When I was 12 years old, my mom invited me for a visit, not to stay, but for a visit. I was traveling by myself in the care of a stewardess, that's what they were called then. The first plane ride, the very first time on a plane, The wing of the plane cracked, we were all plummeting towards the ocean. The oxygen masks all fell and I remember people praying and saying goodbye to each other. People were screaming, luggage became projectiles. And I just remember being so angry that I waited 12 years to see this beautiful America and it was gonna end in the darkness over the ocean. It didn't. For some reason, we had to make an emergency landing in Miami. Seeing New York or America for the first time was like stepping into a whole new fantasy world. I didn't understand escalators, elevators, color television and limitless snacks. The bustling vibrancy took my breath away. I didn't want to go back because I was here with my sisters. At the age of 13, I got a second visit. Equally magical. Then at the age of 14, I moved to live in the States with my mother and my two sisters. My dad was not in the picture. I didn't really have a relationship with him. When I came to the U.S. and started going to high school, I had really, really bad skin. I was tormented for years. Five girls, I could still say their names, would hit me, push me, and threaten to beat me up after school, make up names for me, because of my skin, that I couldn't even go to my classes. I had to sit in my guidance counselor's office because they were threatening me. I was this new girl, new in the country, didn't have fancy clothes, didn't have much of anything. Between the ages of 14 and 21, I lived with my mother. I lived there for six years and 10 months, and it was a miserable existence. Not only because of the restrictions, but because it was devoid of love and affection. There was a tremendous amount of criticism. Anything that could be highlighted to make me feel badly about myself. Our lives were heavily guided by the strict principles of the Pentecostal church. It was a time loaded with restrictions. Any semblance of fun or secular activities were all forbidden. So dating, television, Music, movies, makeup, or even wearing pants were out of the question. The only path to companionship was to get approval from the pastor to get married, leaving most young girls, including myself, vulnerable and completely clueless about the real world. The first play that I ever did, I was 19 years old. I auditioned and I booked the lead, the last scene in the play. I had to fall on my knees. I had this big crying scene. Quite often, even after I left the stage, it took me a while to get out of the character. On closing night, there's applause and standing ovations, but I went backstage after we took our bows and I couldn't turn it off. Backstage, I heard a young man who I've seen in the church many, many times, very handsome, and I heard, are you okay? And I remember jumping and looking at him immediately feeling shameful. Oh my God, you're back here with a boy. He walks over and he hugs me. It was a very brief hug. I'm 19 years old now. I've never been hugged by someone of the opposite sex. I've never dated. I've never kissed. That one hug was all I have ever had. Of course, I was drawn to him because of that crumb of affection. Being that we weren't allowed to date, we would talk. It was very covert. I would not let anyone know that I was seeing him. I was going to Hunter College at the time. He would come see me after class. Once I remember him trying to hold my hand and I snatched it from him as if he burnt me. I said, we're not allowed to hold hands. What if someone sees us? That's the amount of conditioning that we had. All that time when I was seeing him for two years, nothing ever happened because we were both very compliant we adhered to the rules of the church. We didn't want to go to hell, which is something that was taught to us on a regular basis. At that time, he had given me a little engagement ring. The pastor told me, take that ring off your finger. You're never to see him again. Despite seven years of going to the church, being on the choir and participating in all the things, we made a decision that I needed to get out of there. So I ran away and I married him. After I married him, The second day, I remember asking him, is it okay if I turn on the television? I remember him looking at me with such shock as if you're an adult now. This is your home. Of course you could turn on the television. The first year was wonderful. The newness and the novelty of it was fantastic. He was 19, going on 20, and I had just turned 21. So we were young. I was estranged from my family. I didn't have anyone, and he knew that. My innocence and my vulnerability were definitely very evident, and unfortunately, my husband used them as weapons against me. Three years after we were married, that this very, very difficult pregnancy, I had to stay in bed for the entire nine months. I had to postpone graduating. When he left, he confessed. He said, there was a different woman in your bed every night. He betrayed me, even going to the extent of bringing other women into our home. While I was in the hospital, after giving birth to our daughter, eventually he left me for a younger woman, very cruelly citing the weight that I had gained during my very high-risk pregnancy as the reason he was leaving me and our young daughter alone in a semi-abandoned building that was infested with rats and water bugs. Going into the bathroom one night, the entire wall was blanketed with water bugs that if you asked me, what was the color of the paint, I would be unable to tell you. That's the situation that he left us in. The day he told me that I was too fat, he told me, I am confused about my marriage. I'm going to stay with my friend. In the eyes of God, we're married. Let's talk about it. He says, no, I need to go and stay with my friend. Three weeks later, I needed money for Pampers and formula. I called his friend and his friend like, I haven't seen him in months. It's none of my business, but he lives with his girlfriend. And that's how I found out that he had actually moved on from us. I was still feeling this sense of abandonment and that I don't matter. When he did that, it was like being eviscerated. I describe in the book, I don't know where this courage came from, but I got up and said, I'm leaving. Determined to make a better life for myself and my infant daughter, I mustered the courage and I left him. We had an old, broken-down Chevy Chevette, and I packed everything in it. The car was dead. I didn't really know how to drive or where I was going, but I just grabbed everything that I could and put my child in the back, got in the front seat, and started turning the ignition. It wouldn't turn over. It wouldn't turn over. And finally, like a miracle, it started. You could tell the car was going to die in a minute. And I get to the light, and... I heard my daughter say, Daddy! I looked up and there's my husband. I don't know where he came from or why he was there at that very moment, but I was like, oh my God, he's going to see all the things in the car that I'm packing up and I'm leaving. He's gonna be angry. I'm like, oh my God, light change, change, change. As the light changed, the car died. He's walking towards me. He was wearing a white down jacket. I remember him looking at me with confusion. And as he got literally within inches, the car starts. And I make a quick right. I'm crying because I don't know where I'm going. All I have is a $50 bill to my name, a young infant and some cheese sandwiches. The car is beginning to sputter. So I turned into this car repair shop. This guy walks up to me. He says, hey, can I help you? And I says, I'm trying to get away from my husband, but I don't have any money and I think this car is dying. I remember him peeking in and seeing my child and all of our things. And I remember him saying, okay, you could go in the waiting area. This was January. There's some hot cocoa in there. Sit and make yourself comfortable. I will fix it for you for free. took about two hours. I put my daughter in the car and I buckle her in. I come around to the driver's seat. And that's when I felt him standing next to me. He says, I know this piece of shit wouldn't get you far. Where are you going? I'm like, I just want to go and visit my friend. I'll be back tomorrow. Knowing full where I had no intention of ever returning. I didn't know where I was going, but I knew that I had to muster the courage to find a safe space for me and my daughter. And I started driving. When I look in the rearview mirror, lo and behold, there was smoke everywhere, but I was close to the exit. I took my daughter out of the car. I sat on a bench. And the car was right there. People had to go around it. But all of my energy and all of my hope had just whittled away. I heard some young men say, Miss, would you like us to push the car for you? I say, I have a $50 bill. I will give you the $50 bill, but you have to give me back $45. My only thought was they're going to take it and they're going to run away with it. And they pushed the car. Then I gave them the $50 bill and they made change among themselves. And they gave me back the $45. I went to a phone booth. I called my friend and I asked her, could I stay with you? This is the same friend that I stayed with when I ran away from my mom's house to get married to him. Full circle, I was right back there. That's how I got away from him. I'm now living with my friend. Within three weeks, I found a basement apartment. Now I have to pay rent because at his dad's house, we weren't paying any rent. I was working a receptionist job and I had little to no money. The babysitter's fee was $50 for me to go to work. A lot of times we didn't have food. My friend, the same friend who I'm friends with to this day, we've been best friends for 48 years. She would help me. If she bought a coat for her daughter, she would buy one for my daughter as well. Unfortunately, she has dementia, but I went to visit her last year. I still talk to her every day. Sometimes she remembers, sometimes she doesn't. It was a pretty dark time and I was very sad. I was crying a lot. One day I'm taking my daughter to the babysitter. I see this tall, skinny guy reading the electric meters, and didn't really have an interest in him or any other man for that matter. So I would walk past and my daughter would go into the house every month because he would read the meter every month. This one particular day He said, I see you every month. You're very beautiful. I would love to take you out to dinner sometime. He wrote his number on a piece of paper and he handed it to me. He said, give me a call. I live with my aunt. You can call anytime. I says, I don't think so. Weeks later, I fished in the bottom of my purse and I called him. He wanted to take me to the movies. I cannot say there was any attraction whatsoever to him. I needed a distraction. There was this cavernous hole in me, this darkness, this sadness. We went out a few times. He had a car, so he could drive me to the grocery store, to the laundromat. I was like, oh, okay, it's not so bad. It's company. This particular day, he took us to Coney Island. He dropped me off, and he had to take stuff out of the trunk, and I saw toys. I said to him, whose toys are those? And he said, it's my cousins. I live with my aunt, and these are for children's toys. Sometimes I take them places. And I says, oh my God, he's married. That evening he came to pick me up. And I said, are you married? And he says, I didn't tell you the truth because it's not much of a marriage. She was 16 when she got pregnant and I had to marry her, but there is no love there. I sleep on the couch. You can ask my mom. It's not much of a relationship. I says, no. At that time, I was also legally married because I didn't have any money to afford a lawyer for a divorce. Two weeks into our seeing each other, I told him the truth. I says, look, my husband has moved in with someone else. I am still legally married, but I just want you to know that I am. As soon as I can get the money, I'm going to file for divorce. And he lost his mind. He started stomping and screaming and yelling at me how he didn't want to be with someone who's married after he had feelings for me, and he made me feel like crap. Lo and behold, he was in the worst situation because he was married with children. So I stopped talking to him. I cut him off. The sadness was real and so bad. I was just walking through quicksand in my life, trying to do the best thing to take care of my daughter, but I was lost. I don't know if it was weeks or months later, At 2 o'clock in the morning, my doorbell rang. I looked through the peephole, and it was him. He's crying, and he's saying, she threw me out. I have nowhere to go. I opened the door because I am me. Now, this Donna would say, well, I don't know what to tell you. Go to a shelter. Go to your mother. But at that moment, I needed to help him. I opened the door, and he came in. He's weeping. He has his suitcase, and he says, I'm really sorry for what I did. I made him tea. I gave him a blanket and a pillow, and I made him comfortable. We stayed together for 19 years. We lived together for seven years before I married him. I spoke to his mom, who corroborated, it's not much of a marriage. That was true. But nevertheless, what was not lost on me was his volatile behavior, his temper. For those 19 years, he was both physically and emotionally abusive. I was kicked. I was slapped. I was pushed. Issues were broken, my walls were broken. If I didn't want to be in the car with him and I would start walking, he has actually pulled up and literally picked me up and threw me in the car. He would say, if I can't have you, no one can. I will kill myself and everyone in this house. He had bad credit and he owed a lot of tickets so cars would be registered in my name. People who are abused or in trauma situations You find yourself trying to do things to fix it, to keep the peace. So I would register these cars in my name and he would get all these parking tickets. I wouldn't know until the car was impounded. I had to leave work and go and pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get the car. It was not all nightmarish. I had a couple of surgeries and he would turn into this other person where he was so caring and so loving would get up every morning and make breakfast for me and take me to the doctor. I was so desperate. I just was settled for crumbs because I didn't think I deserved the whole loaf.
0: Because I was starving for that, I would excuse everything else. Also, the more survivors share, the more we realize that's the mechanism of domestic violence and abuse is that cyclical snowballing nature. Part of that cycle is the love bombing stepping in when you're most vulnerable, they're earning more social currency and emotional currency with you. You need them so deeply and they know it's finite. They don't need to keep it up forever because that's going to buy them time later on. And that's just the nature of abuse. I hate to put it that way, but the more we share, those are the linear pieces that we realize in all abuse.
1: Yeah, there would be the random flowers. And when I was ill, in the hospital for 11 days, he was there. And I would say, well, at least I have somebody to care for me. But when you talk about love bombing and him trying to create this currency that he could then use, that's exactly what he did. And that's a real profound observation. It was a tumultuous 19 years of suffering. The constant threat of violence and his explosive behavior kept me captive really in this very oppressive situation. But after my daughter left and went away to college, through careful planning and staging, I managed to orchestrate my escape. My daughter was away starting her own life. It was very, very risky, because he could have returned home when the movers were moving out. The saddest part about leaving was leaving my dog. I had to concoct that I was being transferred to the West Coast, I wasn't. Because I work in human resources, I was able to create a letter that made it seem authentic. I was still reeling from what had happened. I was still scared. When I would leave my office, I was always looking over my shoulders and thinking that he was going to come for me. When I made the terrifying decision to leave him, I found myself grappling with a whirlwind of emotions. There was a lingering sadness from years of abuse mixed with the fear that he might track me down and kill me. There was also this glimmer of happiness knowing that my daughter and I were finally free from his grip, that love and a healthy relationship were not completely out of reach for me. But as I stepped into this new chapter of my life, I couldn't shake off the weight of my childhood experiences, the feeling of sadness and abandonment that had haunted me since I was a little girl, still casts rather heavy shadow. Despite achieving great success in my corporate life in executive HR, Two or three times a year, I would go to Paris and other parts of the U.S., presenting in high-level executive meetings, taking a cruise down the Seine in Paris, and things of that nature. The silence when I was alone was deafening. I would go in early. I would stay late to demonstrate my work ethic. Then I was promoted to VP, then to director, and to the highest level of managing director at the last place where I worked. One of the reasons that I think I was so successful in human resources is because I am a people person. I will hold this space for you to talk to me. One of my passions is really to help, as you can see, to my detriment quite often. I was acting as well. I did an off-Broadway play, and I was singing with the band, doing different cabaret shows across New York City. and I was having a fantastic time doing it because I'm a very artistic person, and that's how I Convey my emotions, but behind closed doors, as I slipped out of fancy dresses and removed false eyelashes after a show, I was left alone with my thoughts, and they were far from pleasant quite often. December of 1995, Christmas time, I'm sitting on the subway in the same spot where I've sat every morning. I always like to sit right across from the conductor because I felt safer. It was the very first stop on the train. A woman entered. She looks at me for whatever reason, and I look at her. She gave me this faint smile, which I thought was strange, but I gave her a faint smile back. Then she stood directly above me. She was wearing a black and white checkered suit and a black coat, which was open. The train continued to move. Stop. I have to stop. By now, the train is getting very crowded, but I am very aware of her presence. I looked up at her at one point, and she had an asthma pump in Halo. She's taking deep breaths and she appears to be having difficulty breathing. I reached up my hand and I touched her arm. I said, Miss, would you like to sit? She nodded her head yes. And I stood up so that she could sit. But the train was so crowded that we were literally twisting and turning just to get her into my seat. As we were doing that, she touched my arm. She looked me in my eyes and she said, Miss Today, I am going to die. I have two little girls. Please help me. She collapses in my arms. Everybody jumped in to help, and we laid her across the seat. We started CPR. The conductor radioed for EMS to meet us at the next station. Everyone on that train just rallied. She was surrounded by love and care, and everybody wanted to help her. Then the unthinkable happened. The conductor announced, that the train in front of us had lost power. So now we couldn't get to EMS and EMS couldn't get to us. Everyone realized the gravity of the situation. And by then it was clear that she had expired. We get to the next station 25 minutes later, all of the authorities, the EMS, the police, everyone rushed us all off the trains, everyone off the train, everyone off the train. train. The EMS workers pounced on her and started doing their work. I was the last person with whom she spoke. There had to be some reason. Why did she tell me she was going to die? They were doing chest compressions. They were doing the paddles. They were starting IV. They were doing everything. I just felt this connection to her. Finally, I watched them put her in a body bag. The bag was not zipped to cover her face. At that time, I was working in the Wall Street area, and I got to my office, closed the door, and obviously lost it. I started calling all of the hospitals in that area. I finally got the hospital where she was. The nurse said, I can't give you any information unless you are family. And I says, I'm not family, but I'm the last person that she spoke with. I'm just hoping, is she okay? I'm not supposed to tell you anything, but she passed. Of course, I was very sad, but still tortured. Why was I the last person with whom she spoke? I swore off subways. I says, I will never ride a subway again. I never again want to be in a situation where I'm at the mercy of being stuck in the tunnel. Now I start taking the express bus. Week three of me taking the bus, I'm walking down the aisle and I feel someone tug at me and look over at a face that looks vaguely familiar, she told me that, Donna, don't you remember me? We went to high school. Oh, yes, we were best friends. She moved over and I sat next to her and she told me about her life, her husband and her children. Then she said to me, how come I've never seen you on the bus before? I said, well, I normally take the subways, but I started to tell her this story about what happened on the subway three weeks earlier. And she's having a reaction And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's just affecting her, but she's literally falling apart. By the time she got her composure back, she says, that was my cousin. My family has been so upset trying to figure out what happened to her. I was able to tell her the play-by-play of what happened, that she was loved to the very end. We cared for her. She cried and she says, I can't wait to tell her husband and her two little girls. She told me that this woman was 28 years old, had some sort of a lung condition and needed to have surgery. But because it was Christmas time, she wanted to spend it with her little girls and postpone the surgery till after Christmas. And that was her fatal mistake. She told me that she was married. She didn't have two little girls, just bought a house. And how thankful she was to me that I was able to tell her that story. So I found closure with her because I found out who she was. And they found closure with me because I was able to tell her family what happened. I've never seen my friend ever again. And that story stays with me. It was at this point that I decided to seek therapy and embark on a journey of healing. For the eight years after I left my second husband, that was the focus. I went into therapy. I was trying to release the emotional sludge, as I like to call it. I allowed myself to freely express and process the pain that I was carrying. I remember crying through every session for a good six months till I got it out of me. I prioritized self-care. I engaged in physical activities. I even triumphantly completed the New York City Marathon. Keep in mind, I hadn't ran since high school. Took me over six hours. But I finished it. They put a medal around my neck. I made dates with myself. I had regular massages, manis, and the pedicures became essential indulgences for me. I would do some traveling and spend quality time with friends and family just to help me to reconnect with joy. Yet amidst all of this growth and self-nurturing, there was still an unfilled longing for one truly healthy and meaningful relationship in my life. I was now in my mid-50s. And I yearned for the warmth of a genuine connection for a person who would be my partner through thick and thin. And so my search for my person led me to give online dating a try after someone suggested that I do. My search led me to this person. The pseudonym is Javier De Leon. If anyone will look in the court records, his name is there, but I refuse the infamy that I know he would love.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next.
1: He whined and he dined me. He took me to dinner and movies, boat rides, road trips, and I was having the time of my life. Then I soon discovered that he had a checkered past with a criminal history. He had robbed a bank in his 20s. I set out to renovate this man like an old house.
0: What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at brokencyclemedia. Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.